the international politics is is a difficult and challenging work and it, it takes a lot of wisdom to be able to play the prophet role with these leaders knowing that they will be upset but if god is calling us to get them upset but at the same time god is calling us to tell them look i mean there's there's always a way to repent and go back Welcome to Shake the Dust, Leaving Colonized Faith for the Kingdom of God, a podcast of KTF Press. I'm Cy Hoekstra here with Jonathan Walton and Susie LaHood. Susie, what do we have for the people today? Today we are interviewing Wissam El Salibi, who is the Advocacy Officer of the World Evangelical Alliance, or the WEA, since January of 2018. Based in Geneva, he advocates for the United Nations on behalf of national evangelical alliances in over 130 countries for freedom of religion, rule of law, and human rights. Prior to joining the WEA, El Salibi was the Development and Partner Relations Manager of the Arab Baptist Theological Seminary and a lead trainer in the Middle East on international humanitarian law with the Swiss organization Geneva Call. He received his undergraduate degree in law from the Lebanese University Law School and his master's degree in international law from Aix-en-Provence University Faculty of Law in France. We talked to him about why he and the WEA engaged in international human rights advocacy, his perspective on religious freedom, how Christian political engagement affects our global witness, how churches can approach engagement with oppressive regimes, and a lot more. As a side note, in this interview, we do touch on recent escalations in the conflict between Israel and Palestine. However, we recorded this interview not long after the ceasefire had been brokered between Hamas and Israel. So we talk about the violence like it's in the past because the violations of the ceasefire had not yet occurred. Again, thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. The best way for you to show support is to go to ktfpress.com and subscribe. That gets you our weekly newsletter on resources to help you leave colonized faith for the kingdom of God, bonus episodes of this show, and writing from the three of us. It also supports other projects we're working on, like future books. If you're not in a position to do that, just hit subscribe or follow on your podcast player. Follow us at KTF Press on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and tell your friends about us. And we would love to hear from you. Send your email to shakethedust at ktfpress.com with your comments, questions, any feedback that you'd like to give us. And your question might show up on a future episode. And without further ado, here is our conversation with Wissam Al-Salibi. Wissam Al-Salibi, thank you so much for joining us on Shake the Dust today. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thank you for hosting me. So you are an international human rights lawyer. You work for the World Evangelical Alliance. Could you just give us uh, a sense of what the WEA does and what your role is with them? So in 2018, I joined the World Evangelical Alliance as their advocacy officer in Geneva. I flew with my family to come to Lebanon Sorry, I flew from my family from Lebanon to come to Geneva to work here uh, on human rights advocacy and religious freedom advocacy uh, with the World Evangelical Alliance. And the World Evangelical Alliance was founded in the 1800s. The membership of the World Evangelical Alliance are national evangelical alliances all over the world. And there are more than 130 national evangelical alliances in more than 130 countries. 
These constitute the membership of the World Evangelical Alliance, and therefore the WEA is the body that can represent over 600 million evangelicals all over the world um, in the international forums as an international global voice. And the purpose of a WEA is to equip, to strengthen the national alliances and the local evangelical churches to be a global voice for these alliances and for evangelical values. Within this perspective, the WEA has a Geneva office, and the Geneva office, the mandate of the Geneva office is to pursue advocacy for uh, rule of law, human rights, and freedom of religion or belief as a voice for national evangelical alliances. Very practically speaking, today I'm in touch with people from Algeria, from Nepal, from Vietnam, trying to understand what are, what's been happening with some of the churches, the, the impact of COVID-19 pandemic on the churches. In Algeria, there was a, a court sentencing yesterday for a pastor and his assistant, and there were on 4 June another court decision related to the closure of churches. So we're trying to get the facts right from Algeria as well from the other countries I mentioned so that we can share these facts with the, with the relevant legal analysis, with the United Nations human rights mechanisms, and with diplomats here to tell them what's happening so that we help the local churches and the local evangelical alliances in those countries to help them in advocating for freedom of religion in their countries. In our office, as well as the WA, we seek to help equip and be a voice of our member alliances all over the world. So this is very briefly what the WA is and what the Geneva office is, and therefore what my work entails within this office. So then you as an international human rights attorney are sort of filling in the gap there and trying to advocate, not just to the UN in general, but explaining how kind of international human rights law applies to... Uh, the individual cases that the local evangelical alliances hear about or bring up to you? Yes. And oftentimes the the cases are a stark violation of international human rights law. Most of the cases we work on are freedom of religion cases because that's the most of the requests we currently receive from our members. And the, the main difficulty isn't the legal aspect. The main difficulty is actually to get the facts right and to get to ask the difficult questions that the media doesn't cover. And, you know, the pastors in the field, they're, they're great at being pastors, but they just don't know how to share the right information needed for a report in Geneva. Mm. So uh, a lot of our effort is basically is a lot of email exchanges, phone calls, and to understand uh, what happened, what was the government response or lack, lack of response, the broader context of, what is happening? What was the court decision? Why? What is the what is the, the decision says specifically? Uh, can we get a copy so that we can put all of this in in our report so that we are as factual as possible, accurate as possible, and then explain mm-hmm. how this is a violation of uh, international human rights law, specifically Article 18 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which is on freedom of religion or belief. Uh, in addition to this, to, to the issue of religious freedom, we, we've, we've addressed issues of peace, uh, peace and security. We've addressed issues of human trafficking, and we can address anything that the local alliance asks us to: corruption, 
um, you know, broader human rights issues uh, within, of course, the world. We're only limited by our, our capacity. Our office is small. We, I was the first full-time person in 2018. And mm-hmm. now we have, uh, we were joined by another full-time person. So we are currently two full-time person and two part-time persons working in the office. That's so interesting that this is sort of in some ways a, a new branch, it sounds like, of what the WEA has been doing or almost an expansion of this work. And so could you just talk about, and I, I feel like this is sort of where we see an intersection of your work and kind of the theology behind it. Could you talk about how the WEA sees what you do as integral to its mission as a Christian alliance? The WEA exists to serve the national alliances, national evangelical alliances and churches to, to, to have visible, viable, uh, vital national alliances in every country and the world to serve them and to be their voice. One of the four pillars of WA work is advocacy. Why? Because our alliances and the local church is engaged in advocacy. The local churches and the alliances are mm-hmm. fighting for freedom of religion in most parts of the world because most parts of the world there are violations. The local churches are also involved in, in, in some countries they work against human trafficking, in other countries they work against corruption. In many countries mm-hmm. in Africa, they work for peace, reconciliation, interfaith dialogue and cohesion in societies. So mm-hmm. because of the local churches and the national alliances are engaging at the national level, one way as a global body to serve them is to be an extension for for their voice. Now, this is the practical answer. The theological answer is very simply, we're all created in the image of God. Hmm. We are all, uh, we have inherent dignity and rights because we are created in the image of God. We have responsibilities to uh, respect and fulfill and enshrine the rights of others in societies. The, the governments are ordained and have a responsibility towards God to respect the human rights of their citizens and not to violate them because their citizens are in the image of God, are people bearers of the image of God. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we see these violations because of racism, corruption, greed, of the sinfulness that leads to denying that this other person isn't the image of God. When we talk about second-class citizen, when we talk about persecution of religious minorities, when we talk about persecution of, when we talk about the caste system, when we talk about the religious other, you know, oftentimes when in, in politics, these terms are used to deny that this other person isn't the image of God. He's a human being. We have the obligation to respect his rights. So this is the you know the quick <laughs> theological um, understanding of you know why I engage, why I pursue the work I'm pursuing, and why the WA also engages globally. Yeah, thank you for that. And just expanding a little bit more, could you talk about how the WEA views the United Nations, and if you feel that the United Nations is able to serve? evangelical churches globally. And part of why it's so interesting what you're doing right now and and so inspiring is, I think particularly in the United States, unfortunately, um, there have been some strains, I think, of, of evangelicalism where the United Nations and even the whole 
human rights project is viewed as suspect somehow. And so, yeah, if you could just expand on on the perspective of the WEA on on the kind of work that you're doing through the UN. So what is the United Nations? The United Nations is the gathering of all sovereign states all over the world. And this gathering of all sovereign states all over the world, um, you know, there is no higher or supreme authority. It's just this big gathering and structure with a charter, the char- with the Charter of the United Nations that came out uh, after the Second World War with the aspiration for peace, for justice, for human rights and human security. Mm-hmm. And this charter is is something that is uh, on paper is something we aspire to we, as peacemakers, as Christians called to be peacemakers in our society, as people called to care for uh, the people around us who are suffering uh, injustice and to, 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 uh, to fight against this injustice, mm-hmm. just like in the Old Testament prophets. We, we view this, the, the charter of the UN and, and the idea of the UN to be extremely valuable. We should not take it for granted. I mean, it's a very young organization when you think about the history of humanity. Right. And it's an important forum, international forum. It's an important national forum to engage with. Because while, you know, we recognize that whenever you put sinful people in a room, you're not going to get uh the best results we're all sinful <laughs> but at the same time it is our calling as a global body is our calling as a church we are not part of this world but we are in this world so when we go to the united nations we go as ambassadors of christ we go with with a sense of that we need to engage in this forum to defend freedom of original belief but to do so in a way that points to the hope that we have. We engage with the United Nations because it's a very important global forum for the same reason why we go on in a mission field or anywhere else. It's just, a, it's just another mission field where, uh, where we need to engage and help the United Nations and help the diplomats, quote unquote, to, um, to look at the UN Charter, to look at the human rights declarations and international covenants and instruments, and to help them understand and put them in practice, because we are in a broken world and these ideal uh, documents are not yet in practice. Human rights violations in the recent decade are only increasing a uh, violation of religious freedom is increasing according to every single report and every different methodology of it, how you assess it. And in this context, we feel our calling as the World Evangelical Alliance, and I believe that as the church globally, is to be a voice in support of human rights and dignity and to engage with governments, to engage with the United Nations mechanisms, with the diplomats, mm-hmm. because that's that's part of our calling as a church of to make to seek peace and to humbly call out injustice. So, Wissam, as you were sharing, um, I just couldn't help but think about the the tension um, that I felt as you were speaking about how you thought so aspirationally and so missionally about the United Nations, um, but then also thinking about 
how American evangelicalism's historical view of the de- of of the United Nations is very different. Um, and so I'm wondering, um, particularly as you fight for religious freedom, um, or are you fighting for Christians' freedom? We uh, in in um, as as the World Evangelical Alliance globally and as the Geneva Office, we advocate for freedom of religion or belief for all, for mm-hmm. everyone, because that's because everyone is in the image of God and everyone deserves and needs to have the right for freedom of religion or belief. Mm-hmm. But also practically, you cannot fight f- for the rights of one community in a, at a time where globally uh, evangelicals are a minority. And in in most countries, it's not just the evangelicals, but the evangelicals and other religious minorities and other communities are their rights are violated so in these countries we see the local churches oftentimes more often than not advocating for the rights of everyone within their community partnering with um, like in india for example with muslims with um, you know other minority groups in um, you know we see this in sri lanka so mm-hmm. Oftentimes, in, in many parts of the world, there are local alliances in support of protection of minorities when the church is a minority. And we echo this uh, you know, at the United Nations. But fundamentally, we really believe that the strategy is you know, we need to support the freedom of original belief for everyone because that's the only way we can support the church. You know, we need structural change. We don't need, you know, you cannot advocate for a law that protects Christians. We need a law that in a, in a given country that protects everyone, including the, the, the churches. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the ethos of our advocacy. And that's important in Geneva because there is a misperception that, you know, this is, a, you know, the World Evangelical Alliance is a tribal, tribal group, an interest group that are here to defend their own group. Uh, they're not committed to human rights as such. They just they're here to advocate their agenda, which is false. And over time, people are noticing that we are we truly do what we're doing because one, we're grassroots, we're connected with the locals, and second, we are we are committed to the human rights framework because this is the value system that we believe emanates starts started with the the Christian biblical worldview that believes that every single human being is in the image of God, the equality, inherent dignity, you know, in, in the Human Rights Declaration in, in 1948, you know, everyone is endowed with reason. So this, 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 is, this is our belief, and this is what we need to um, communicate in international forums. I think sometimes in the U.S. it's difficult for us to uh, kind of wrap our heads around the framework that you just gave us, even though it's a relatively simple, um, reasonable seeming framework, because we are so used to here advocating for very small things that, that we kind of argue are, you know, oppressive towards us. Like right now, there's a, there's a case in the Supreme Court where Christians are arguing that we should have the freedom to take public money and have Christian foster care agencies um, refuse to license foster parents who are same-sex couples or who are just single foster parents even. And, you know, that we, we argue that that's a religious freedom issue, right? So it's not the state like oppressing us. It's just the state not allowing us to use its funds to 
discriminate in the ways that we prefer based on kind of moral disapproval of certain types of couples. And I, I, I don't, or certain types of families. And I, do you think that that sort of what I would characterize as a false witness in the U S affects how the UN thinks about the world evangelical Alliance? Hmm. There is a misperception and misunderstanding of evangelicals globally. And it's not just because of um, the politics of the, the evangelical politics in the U S there's also the evangelical politics in Africa, evangelical politics in mm. in, Bra- in Brazil and Latin America, and everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's causing a lot of misunderstanding, but also the methods and approaches for advocacy that are aggressive, pursued by some evangelicals that change, seeking to change in legislation when we are failing to change the hearts of people and convincing the people has led to backlashes, has led to limited effectiveness. You know, you could, I mean, just the issues of abortion, when you when you think of the examples of Poland and Argentina and what's happening, you know, you could have limited success, but then uh, what is the meaning of your success at the court or the government or the parliament level if the population stands up against you? What does it mean for the church and the church witness? Mm-hmm. These are difficult questions uh, to grapple for a lot of our members and national alliances. Uh, now, as the World Evangelical Alliance, we are a global body representing, you know, from over 130 nations. So a lot of the questions that are that the local alliances face at the local level, um, you know, we, we pray and support the alliances as they, and we pray for, the, for wisdom to know how to navigate it, but it's not for us to address unless it's a human rights, it has a, it has a broader human rights implication. Mm-hmm. That is that we need, to, we, and then we, we are requested to, to, to work on it. So in most parts of the world, evangelicals are a minority. It's true that the church is growing and that evangelicals are growing, but we're still a minority. So it's not like we are, you know, we have the same challenges that exist in the U.S., for example, mm-hmm. where evangelicals um, have a greater margin of maneuver uh, in in politics and society. So uh, so that's why the WA's questions and priorities are, are different from what you, some of the things you see. Yeah. Uh, and we try to reflect that we are a global body. We try to reflect that we are a global evangelical body and that evangelicals are, uh, you know, by nature everywhere in the world. And we, we genuinely care for the dignity and human rights for everyone. We, do ta- we, did ta- we did take a stand, for example, when Swedish Alliance asked us to ask, uh, you know, to object for the denial of the right to conscientious objection for medical practitioners uh, who are forced to partake in abortion, otherwise they will lose their license as a nurse. She wouldn't be able to practice as a nurse. There are four countries in the world, I think, where nurses are uh, obliged to partake in abortion and there's no right mm-hmm. to conscientious objection. And when, you know, we, we brought this up at uh, the United Nations, it's a clear and cut case of violations of the right of the nurses to be forced to uh, to partake in abortion, you know this is the kind of causes that end up on my desk. Uh, the, the ones in the U.S. it's it's um, I mean it's a national challenge and difficulty 
to address, but um, you know, it's not necessarily yet relevant for a global human rights framework. I don't know what will happen in the future, how, how things mm -hmm. will go. Wissam, uh, shifting gears a, a little bit, you have spent, I'm sure, a lot of time thinking about how churches should respond when they exist under oppressive regimes. And, and I'm thinking specifically not just about your work globally, but even pastors that you and I know who participated in Arab Spring uprisings in Egypt and Tunisia and thinking about the situation in Lebanon and, and the protests and, um, and uprisings there. So how, how do you think Christians should frame their thinking about their response to corruption and tyranny and violence from the state? What are your sort of insights into that? Yeah, this is a question that I've been trying to understand and grapple because, you know, you go to meet uh, in Geneva with diplomats of countries that are considered to be oppressive, tyrannical, committing widespread human rights violations, and you try to engage with them. But I know also that evangelicals and leaders, they, they engage with the you know, the WA leadership with a lot of countries all over the world. And the reality is, first and foremost, there's, there's no country uh, in the world that does not commit some form of human rights violations. I mean, of course, th there, there are different measures, but uh, I mean, the United States, I mean, oftentimes we, we, uh, we criticize other countries, but the United States, the 2003 war on Iraq, the weapon sales that they do, uh, leading, and also the the whole uh, issue of policing and community, are all violations uh, of human rights, or, or or include violations of human rights. So I'm saying this to say that oftentimes the discourse is that China, Russia, and Iran are the evil doers. In reality, in my work, it, you see that. Most countries in the world, there are severe difficulties and challenges for human rights, with the exception maybe of some European countries, but even Sweden that I mentioned the issue of, you know, Sweden might might be viewed as a, you know, as, as a country that respects human rights, but then nurses can, are obliged to partake in abortion. So, you know, every country in the world, you, ha you, you have to challenge the people and the authorities to tell them, these your people your citizens your minorities all are equal should be equal citizenship for all because everyone is in the image of god everyone has human rights and human dignity you cannot pursue what you're pursuing in india in terms of neglecting christian or muslim minorities and you cannot in the united states pursue policing where African-Americans are being killed and shot with, with harrowing narratives and stories that we read, or, you know, China uh, and how is the treatment of uh, whether Muslim or Christian minorities, etc. Now, the, one of the challenges is we also need to keep in mind that these rulers, these um, the, those who commit human rights violations, I mean, including the worst of the worst, if we say that the, in Syria, for example, the, the killing that took place, the bloodshed, whether by the government or by opposition groups, I mean, there are also people in the image of God. And also we need to pray for the pole moment, pole going towards Damascus and Jesus appearing to him. 
we shouldn't forget this story from our head when we engage with with and when we denounce when we uh, you know go and say listen you you are committing these violations let's have a conversation about it these human rights violations we shouldn't leave forget that even those people have the opportunity to repent and we shouldn't forget that and we should in one way or the other communicate this and it's not an easy line uh, to to walk on so i i think a lot about what is the the way that you go and meet whether in geneva diplomats or in in the capitals you meet the leaders and you honestly engage with them and call out injustices in their countries and injustices that they may be committing while at the same time demonstrating love to them, while demonstrating God's love to them, and at the same time not not being uh, not allowing to be manipulated or misused for their media and PR machine, saying we just met with this group of evangelicals and everything is going well in our country. So it's it's the international politics is is a difficult and challenging work, and it, t- it takes a lot of wisdom to be able to play the prophet role with these leaders, knowing that they will be upset. But if God is calling us to get them upset, but at the same time God is calling us to tell them, look, I mean, there's there's always a way to repent and go back. Uh, we should we should pray always to find this balance. Also, we shouldn't uh, play into government narratives, uh, you know, saying this: these governments are the evil and this is the good, or we are good and they are bad. And I started off, I started off by saying, you know, most governments are, you know, everybody's sinful. There's no, uh, there's no government or government leaders that are uh, irreproachable, and we need to understand that in our engagement. I often call on churches and I've recently I was having a conversation and you know someone asked me what do you think of um, the XYZ bad countries nasty countries and I, and I responded thinking well before we talk about other countries Christians should talk about their own government and country they should call out the injustice in their society they should call out their violations of human rights in their own society before we set out to criticize the rest of the world. Yeah. And I I think your essay in our book last year was also got at this point. It was a little bit more in the foreign policy area, but just on on, um, Christians believing in the moral superiority of their country. So for a lot of really great thoughts on that, I would suggest listeners go and read that essay. Recently, uh, with some shifting gears a little bit, you have been writing kind of online about the conflict in Israel and Palestine and trying to come up with a way of thinking about that particular situation that um, takes seriously the biblical call to justice for the oppressed, but also respects you know, the image of God in all people, like you've talked about a few times. Um, can you tell us where, where your thoughts are on that situation right now? Thank you. In, in May, there was this, uh, again, yet another massive conflict between Hamas and the Israeli army, uh, along with demonstrations and mobilization in the West Bank and within Israel itself for the Palestinians who hold Israeli citizenship. And I'm a Lebanese. So as a Lebanese, um, you know, growing up in Lebanon, I mean, I had, Israel for me, growing up in Lebanon meant uh, 
bombings and attacks and killing. You know, in 1996, Israel attacked during one of the episodes with Hezbollah. In 1996, they attacked a UN shelter where 100 women and children uh, were were immediately killed and massacred uh, by an Israeli attack on that shelter. You know, and you so when when you're growing up and you see that Israel is killing women and children in Lebanon, you you have uh, you know, you have uh, deep injury and hurt. Mm. So one of, before talking about what's just happened, what the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I, ne- I need to understand myself that I'm very much hurt as a Lebanese by um, the, the crimes, the war crimes committed by the Israelis. In 2006, also there was a war where over a thousand people uh, maybe 1,000 civilians were killed by Israel. And I was part of the Human Rights Watch team of three people. I was actually the translator back then, you know, going and investigating why most, why these 1,000 people were killed or more than 1,000, you know, going from one village to the other and understanding how the attack happened, what happened. With, and, we, and we verified that most of the people who were killed were civilians and there was no explanation or rationale why they were attacked by the Israelis. Uh, you can read the report why they died by Human Rights Watch about uh, about this. So, so this is a challenge for me because I have to overcome my hurt. This is where my Christian identity and my identity in Christ needs to overcome my Lebanese identity of growing up in a country where we were on the recipient end of American-made bombs sent by Israel. We need to over, I need to overcome this, uh, this injury in order to genuinely love the Israeli other, this other side. Uh, because we are called to love them, whether we want to classify them as enemies or neighbors or friends, whatever, we are called to love and we are called uh, to, you know, to respect that they are also in the image of God. And this is, this was, this is, this is, this is always a challenge when, when, when I read the media and I read the accounts of what happened in May, what's happening ongoing on, when you see on Twitter, um, uh, you know, we will not forgive, we will not forget, we will take vengeance. And you have to be able to filter all the information that we're receiving, to filter them through the, the, the filter of the Bible that says, okay, you will not forget, fine, but you need to forgive. You need to forgive, but also you need to fight against the ongoing injustice. You need to, we need to act as agents for peace, and what does it mean to act as agents for peace when there is, uh, you know, there's um, in, in Israel and Palestine specifically, but also in the region, you have Israel is Goliath and strong with nuclear weapons, with military and funding and economy. And they have chosen to, you know, oppress the Palestinians. You, when the Palestinians go demonstrate, at least one person is shot and killed. When when they when they launch when Hamas launches rockets, more people get killed. When um, you know the Palestinians resist their home demolition and getting kicked out of their homes, they you know like to, like yesterday uh, there were several people detained in Sheikh Jarrah and Jerusalem. Yes. So when the war happened in May, I was thinking, what 
what is my voice as an evangelical Christian? And my voice as an evangelical Christian, Arab, is first and foremost to my own people and my own community is to say violence is not the answer. Everyone is in the image of God. Everyone has inherent dignity, including the Israelis, including the Palestinians, including the Palestinians in Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon or in Gaza or elsewhere, including the Jews all over the world, whether those who support Israel or those who uh, support uh, you know, the justice for the Palestinians. And then the second layer of thinking for me is it's an asymmetric war where you have one side, the Israelis, they have not only the military might, but also the media, uh, the media and communication and the control of the narrative. And I felt as an evangelical Christian, in addition to affirming that everyone is in the image of God, I wanted to fight over the narrative because in the West, I felt that uh, the Palestinian is portrayed as the terrorist or, you know, portrayed as the person who is basically, why are they uh, launching rockets or why are they demonstrating? There's the misunderstanding of the context of the animosity, of the violence, of, of every, you know, how you, what it means to growing up as a Palestinian and you end up throwing uh, stones or throwing rockets at the Israelis, just to explain all of this. And then, so I just wanted, wanted to have this kind of contribution. Um, because I felt, I, I don't know, I was thinking, what is my calling in this in this situation? Uh, you know, I've had conversations with Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, and I've challenged them. Uh, you know, they're they're not Christian, they're they're Muslim, and I try to challenge them when a conversation on on in relation to the Israelis to see if they can envision a solution of the of the conflict that includes everyone that uh, embraces the Jewish and, and everyone. And, and they couldn't. They couldn't in part because they've never met an Israeli. Uh, because when you're a refugee in Lebanon, it's not like in the West Bank or in Israel where you actually meet and you, know, you, you look into the Israelis in their eyes. You know, in Lebanon, there's this distance. And so it's much easier to dehumanize. And it's much more difficult for me to try to humanize the, 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 the Israelis. But it's also there's a sense of helplessness. You're talking to people who are going up in a camp in a very difficult financial, social situation, and there's helplessness. So, you know, the, 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 the challenge I find is there are so many stakeholders I need to communicate with. And that is one of the reasons why I ended up doing a podcast episode on the Didomi podcast. Didomi is a collective of Christians who work for justice and uh, peacemaking. And I decided I want to interview Palestinian evangelicals. And you can go on didomi.co to listen to that podcast. And I wanted to challenge them and to understand from them one of the questions is how they try to uh, make their identity in Christ overcome their national Palestinian identity and what is their peacemaking role and what is um, you know how do they how do they see peacemaking and prayer in this conflict and it was just all attempts to be have a constructive edifying contribution within you know recognizing that it is just a drop in the water but you know prayerfully thinking what is my personal calling into the situation um Wissam, thank you so much 
for your time today. Before before we go, is there anything that you would like people to? Uh, obviously, the Didomi podcast would be that you just mentioned would be one, and that, just so people know, that's D I D O M I. Is that correct? D I D O M I dot C O. Um, it's a Didomi is a collective of Christians, and the first thing we did was a podcast because of the pandemic. I mean, we were hoping to do something more physical. I I actually. Because of social media, I'm growing more and more needing to engage more personal, deeper uh, with relationship rather than digital. Uh, but because of the pandemic, uh, we started off this podcast, but we're hoping on the long run to do uh, more um, you know, workshops and events discussing church witness, uh, justice, peacemaking. I, I worry that people, uh, especially young people, have a default, they default back in terms of politics to worldly, world, you know, engagement in politics um, from a, a worldview. They, 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 don't, they don't understand how, as a church people, we, we need to relate to politics. Uh, the approach and the content should be different. And I, I'm talking not as, you know, I'm talking as, as a Lebanese seeing what's happening in the Arab world and elsewhere. I'm not talking about what's happening in the United States. Right. And where and uh, where can people uh, follow you online? I recently shut down my Facebook account because I grew wary with Facebook as a concept and content and everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and privacy concerns. So I'm on Twitter currently, W-A-L-S-A-L-I-B-Y, uh, on Twitter and um, on LinkedIn. And that's where I share and I try to present a bit. Um, I write often on the ABTS, Arab Baptist Theological Seminary's blog. And there's the Didomi podcast where I, uh, with a group of friends, we are interviewing and sharing about oftentimes what we work on. Yeah, in addition to the, the Domi blog, the ABTS uh, blog is another good resource that listeners should check out. Um, Wissam, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you for hosting me. I really appreciate it. I appreciate the work you're doing. And thank you also for offering that I contribute to the book that you wrote. Oh, of course. We loved having you and, and we, we feel the same about the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. Please remember to take a moment to check out our blog at ktfpress.com. Consider subscribing or signing up for our free emailing list. Follow us on social media at KTF Press. Remember to subscribe to this podcast or follow it, whatever your podcast player says. Just click that button. That means you'll get notifications when we have new episodes. And leave us a rating and review if you can. Also, remember to write in to shake the dust at ktfpress.com with questions written or recorded as a voice memo. You might show up on a future episode if you do. Our theme song is Citizens by John Guerra. Our podcast art is by Jacqueline Tam. And we will see you next week when we have Professor Kristen Kobes Dume to talk about her book, Jesus and John Wayne. It's a good one, everybody. We will see you then. When we arrive, I and you call us citizens, and you welcome us as children All right, so let's go to, to the other one, which is, I don't know why I made these two separate documents. So you could put them in the two separate folders. Yep. Organization. Very obvious to me. <laughs> Good. We should just do our own little jingles. Hey, shake that dust. <laughs> hey, shake that dust.